Thank you for tuning into the City Church California podcast. We exist for anyone to believe in God, to become who God created them to be, and to build the church and our city. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so that you can be updated anytime we add new content. Now let's check out the latest message from our Sunday gathering. A couple years ago, at the beginning of COVID, the beginning of this pretty remarkable season, we had uh, we were the first church to open in Phoenix, and you know, um, some cool things happened. Different, whole different, you know, set of possibilities in Arizona. But anyways, I was having a baby dedication, I think, in June of 2020. And uh, due to July, maybe 40, 45 babies in that service. And it's, it's always my funnest Sunday because we have 100 nationalities and we have an unbelievable uh, broad spectrum of names and colors and faces and uh, uh, last week dedicated a little Mexican boy and he already had a mustache and beard baby and it just just was amazing and uh I felt I could feel it in the moms especially I could feel kind of the the trepidation of having kids in this moment you know what, what's happening you know and uh, and so I just turned to my start prophesying, saying your kids are going to be giant slayers God selected them to be born at this time in history as divine solutions to earthly problems. And you don't have to worry about it. There's grace and favor, protection, strength, and calling gifts on them. And it kind of developed in today's, today's message. I believe every person here in this room is called to be a giant slayer because we live in the season of giants. And God's anointed us to overcome. By reading from 1 Samuel 17, is a story of David and Goliath. You know it. And I'm sure Pastor has Judas preached a great Bible teacher. You're a pastor, great staff here. Maybe come at it a little bit different today. Before I open, let me share something humorous. Heard about this family that had identical twin sons. The boys were so physically similar, you couldn't hardly tell them apart. No one but the parents. But their personalities were opposite. One was an optimist and one was a pessimist. And when they turned 10, on their 10th birthday, the father decided to try an experiment. He went out and bought every imaginable toy a 10-year-old boy would want, every new electronic toy, a new bicycle, wrapped them up and put it into the pessimist twin son's room. Then he went and got a truck full of horse manure and dumped it into the optimist twin son's room. Later on that day, he heard someone crying, and he turned down the hall and walked into the pessimist twin, and he was sitting in the midst of all of his open toys, and he was just bitterly crying. And, and the father said, son, why are you crying? Why are you upset? And the boy said, daddy, now all my friends are going to be jealous of me. And someday all these toys are going to break, and look at all the batteries I have to buy. And he went back to crying. The father crossed the hall to the optimist son's room, and to his surprise, saw him jumping up and down for joy right in the middle of the horse manure. He said, son, why are you so happy? And the boy said, Daddy, there's got to be a pony in here someplace. <laughs> I want to encourage you, if you're in a horse manure season, there's got to be a pony in here someplace. Here's what the Bible says. We know all things work together for the good of them that love God called by his purpose. If it's not good yet, it simply means God's not done yet. Don't give up. Give God the chance to write a good ending to your story. 
It's really true. And I'll talk about my own story and the Bible's promise to us. 1 Samuel chapter 17, it begins by showing us a, a battle, a war going on between the Philistines and Israel. And it's interesting dynamics. Both of the armies were positioned on mountains that were opposite each other, on the hills of mountains. And between them was a valley, and they'd come down in the mornings and fight in the valley, then retreat back to their post in the mountains. They were doing this, but there was an unusual aspect to it. That every morning, every afternoon, maybe before and after the battles, this person named Goliath would stand up and speak and and the Bible gives this kind of graphic detail about his physical properties. He's about 11 foot, 4 inches tall. His coat of mail, his, his vest that was made out of bronze weighed 126 pounds. He had a spear that looked like a log. And the tip of the spear, which would be, you know, many feet in front of it, weighed 16 pounds. So this person, he is not just a freak of nature, he is supernaturally strong. So he's never lost a battle. He's never lost a conflict that he was engaged in. The, the Chaldean paraphrase, that ancient historical narrative, declares that Goliath said, boasted that he was the one that killed the priest of Israel, Hophni and Phinehas, in Shiloh. And he lifted up the ark by himself and carried it out of uh, Israel into Philistia. So he is a person of great consequence in the Bible. And so every day, twice a day, Goliath, without raising his sword, raised his voice. And he started shouting toward the armies of Israel. And he said, I challenge you, send me a champion and we'll fight. And whoever wins, that nation will serve. The, other, the losing nation will serve the winning nation. That was a practice in antiquity for instead of whole armies fighting, they would have champions representing the army. And he was so confident, and the Philistines were so confident because they have this, you know, 11-foot-tall, you know, amazing warrior. And for 40 days, he spoke that challenge. He said, I defy you. Aren't you the soldiers of Saul? Is it your God, you know, God? I defy you. It wasn't just a challenge. It was a mocking challenge. It was ridicule. It was an intimidating challenge. And for 40 days, Israel never answered him back a peep. There was no response. And the Bible says it culminated in verse 11 of this chapter. When Saul and all the, of Israel heard the words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So fear came, and then they were dismayed. It's the Hebrew word hatat, which means to be shattered, to be broken. To break someone down by violence, confusion, or fear. Remember what Jesus said, the enemy has come, to, the thief to rob, kill, and destroy. To be in despair, to crush someone, to discourage someone. All of those things happen, so they're afraid, and now they're under psychological warfare. I don't know if you know this or not, but you've been assigned by the enemy the last two and a half, three years, a, a, the, the greatest psychological warfare in human history. So the most information filled with negative and fearful content that any generation has ever heard, you've heard. So the consequence of that, there is a consequence of that. Suicide rates are the highest they've ever been. Addiction rates are spiking. Every negative possibility 
is happening. Isolation is a form of psychological punishment. So everything that's happened has contributed toward negative outcomes. So we're right in this generation, and Goliath really, he represents, his name means to strip a captive naked, to, comp, to capture someone, to imprison them, then strip them, to defeat them entirely, crushing them, okay? So he's, he represents a spiritual stronghold. The Bible talks about these powers, principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this age. He represents a spiritual stronghold that captures people, defeats them, crushes them, discourages them, demoralizes them, imprisons them, abuses them, traumatizes them, and makes them terrorized. All those things. So, so Glass doing his thing, and Israel's not saying, a simple point, never let the devil have the last word. Doesn't matter who it is. I was sitting in your lovely state 18 years ago. Be careful where you take your kids on vacation. We, for 10 years, we came to, you know, Balboa Island and Laguna Beach, and now two of my kids live in Laguna Beach. So they're on permanent vacation. But I was on vacation 18 years ago, and I got real sick in the, maybe June of that year, and uh, was rushed to the hospital and tested and diagnosed, and they diagnosed me with the stage four form of a serious cancer. And so the doctor's explaining all the things to me. And we're sitting in his office, Mary and I. And he's going through the, you know, the kind of, it was pretty negative. Because it was a difficult position cancer and it was advanced and all this stuff. So he's talking to me and I said, excuse me, I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. I shall not die but live. Well, that's Psalm 118, verse 17. I'd been meditating on that. I wasn't even sick. I didn't know I was sick. But it just was in me. And he said, he kind of dumbfounded him. He said, what? I said, I shall not die, sir, but I shall live and declare the works of the Lord. Well, sure enough, it, he, you know, so, so I came back home. There was cancer, blah, 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 blah. And uh, a serious stage four cancer. So um, six months later, let's advance. No cancer. 18 years later, no cancer. All gone. Now, here's my point. Everyone's story is different. But when, when bad news comes or when the enemy is assaulting you with some kind of intimidating threat, don't just take it. Don't just take it. When the devil's tormenting you about where your kids are at or something's, you know, just talk right back. I'll be in my car. The devil, I'll I don't care what people think around me. I'll rebuke the devil. I'll speak in tongues, prophesy, put on some music, do a jig, shout, take an offering all in my car. <laughs> got to do whatever I got to do. Preach to myself, prophesy to myself, slap myself in the face. Get with it, maiden. So David now, so Goliath is doing this thing, his thing twice a day, is preaching I don't know if you know, it's not media preaches. It's an agenda-laden instrument with intentional purpose behind it, almost all of it. So they're preaching, preaching, preaching. So David shows up. His dad, he's a little boy, mid-teens, early teens. He's bringing lunch to his three older brothers who were in the military service for Israel. And so he's bringing lunch to them, and he's, you know, getting supplies for them. And he shows up just in time to hear one of Goliath's sermons. 
And so he shows up and Goliath speaking in David's. I said, whoa. He says, what'd you get for killing him? His first response was, this is wrong. It needs to stop. Nah. And so he starts telling everybody, what'd you get? And they said, well, you get tons of money, no taxes. He said, no taxes. The king's daughter, Mary the king's daughter, those three things. So his voice was so different. People that have faith talk different than people that live in fear. You will stand out just by having faith. People that have hope are like shining lights in a, in a generation of people that are darkened by hopelessness. So David shows up. He's got, what'd you get for killing him? And, and, and so his older brother Eliab rebukes him. Man, shut up. Who's taking care of those little sheep? Mocks his vocation, mocks his position. But there's history behind that. So Eliab and, and, and David's response is to, to him, is there not a cause? We, we can't get stuck on little arguments when we're facing a big problem. And so, so Dave, you know, David goes on, but the, the, the point of Eliab's mess, you know, attack to David was this. David was not accepted by his family. So rabbinic teaching and history strongly suggests, like 95%, strongly suggests that David was the product of an adulterous affair between one of his parents. We're not sure which one. Probably the father. So he was raised in a family but rejected by everyone in it except maybe his mom. And so he knew what rejection was. The prophet Samuel was called to anoint the next king, and the Lord said, the king is at Jesse's house. And so the, the prophet comes quietly, you know, secretly, because it's a serious matter, and it's a punishable matter with death if he got caught. He comes there, and Jesse brings his seven sons. There's Eliab and Shammah, and all seven of them by order. And, and, and the prophet stands before them, but the oil of God won't flow. Before everyone, he says, no, you're not the one. You're, and he looks over the father and says, I know I'm in the right house, but someone's not here. Who's missing? And the father said, oh, yeah, I, I had this, you know, midlife thing. You know, he's this, this kid we're raising. He's, he's kind of in the family, and he's, he's kind of weird, though. Writes poetry, sings music, lies about killing animals. And uh, so the prophet said, we won't sit till he comes. So they go get David. As soon as he walks in, you're the one. Now, now here's, here's my point. Sometimes the people that have the closest relationship with God are driven there by the dysfunction and rejection of their own families. Sometimes the best worshipers were driven to the place of passionate worship by the pain of their own family history. So David wrote in Psalm 27, one of the most poetic and powerful and beautiful pieces of human literature, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? One thing have I desired, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord 
to inquire in his temple, for in the time of trouble he will hide me in the secret place of his pavilion. It's all so great. And then he gets honest. And he said, when my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Ah, you see it in his writings. He drops in these signals. Why was he a great worshiper? He had to worship his way out of trauma. I have found, I, I, I have two degrees in psychology. I have found the most therapeutic healing therapy on earth is worship. It's my opinion. Worship heals. The faster we worship, the faster we heal. Worship changes the atmosphere. Worship changes the outcome. Worship shuts the mouth of the enemy. Worship takes us places we don't deserve to be and gives us things we don't deserve to have. Man, David experienced a New Testament experience under an Old Testament covenant because worship took him there. He saw things no one else was seeing because of what happened. So, so David talks and finally Saul hears about him. And they bring David to Saul because he's talking different. He's not yet been ruined by doubt. He's not yet been captured by fear. And David said, let me at him. I can do it. David's a boy. He's still growing. He's young. The Bible says he's rudy. He's handsome. But he's just a teenager. And, and Saul, six foot five. We think, the Bible says, Saul was head and shoulders taller than the men of Israel. Probably the tallest men in Israel. That's why Goliath really challenged him. And Saul says, man, I appreciate your passion, young man. But that guy over there, when he was your age, he was already 10 feet tall. And, and never let someone who's given up on their dream discourage you from following yours. Now, God forbid that we as an older generation try to steal the dreams of a younger generation because we're not healed. Because we're disappointed. Oh, let it not be so. It's not true in this church. So David says, okay, let me talk to you about my story. I'm a shepherd, and one day I was watching the sheep, and a lion came. And David said, when this lion came, he, he grabbed one of the sheep. I struck it. And I killed it, and I rescued the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose up to attack me, I finished it off. And he said, your servants killed a lion and a bear. Surely the same God that used me to kill a lion and a bear will use me to kill that uncircumcised Philistine. And he, his testimony, there's power in your testimony. The same anointing that gave you your testimony is stirred up and released every time you share your testimony. It's not your story has to go on. People need in their lives what God gave you in your lives, and they can't get it till you tell your testimony. Tell everybody what God's done for you. And so, David, now, just, just a couple of simple points. The victories we win in our private life when no one is watching Qualify us to have platforms of influence to win victories in our public life when everyone is watching. So in the hills, 
of Bethlehem, a little boy conquered the wild beasts. Every person here has wild beasts in your life, has things that we're susceptible to. The Bible says our besetting sin, the places we're vulnerable to. And this is an important point because the biggest Goliath you'll ever face isn't in Washington or Sacramento. or It's in you. And it comes from your family. When you can defeat your family devil, you can defeat a nation's devil. And when you can conquer a lion that runs through your family heritage, let me say it like this. You're the curse breaker. You're the one that will rise up and bind and defeat and destroy every generational curse that has ever controlled and devastated your family. You're the one that will unleash heavenly blessings and fulfilled heavenly promise. You're the difference maker. You're the history maker. You're the giant slayer. I've been married to Mary 43 years. I felt we fell in love as teenagers. And I'd stopped dating, and it was, I uh, finished my first year of seminary, came home, and the Lord said, that, that's her. And, and so we got married early at 21, first child at 22, and started our first church at 27. Way too early, don't do it. <laughs> Somehow, right place, right time, North Scottsdale, where I was raised, God blessed it. Our, our worship leader was Israel Houghton. Just all kinds of good things happened. In 10 years' time, the church grew to about 4,500 people on the weekend. And so we were building, after 10 years, our, our first building. It was a 4,800-seat auditorium on Shea Boulevard in Scottsdale, and it was about maybe halfway, a little more, almost two-thirds of the way finished. But in August of 1995, our church treasurer, a local businessman, owned seven businesses, um, embezzled $20 million from our church. So I had all my church accounts with him. 2,000 families in our church had their accounts with him by my recommendation. And so that was a bad thing. So it became a massive scandal, 10 front page stories, headlines front page stories, pictures of me, always a bad picture. Ah. <laughs> Look at that ogre. All kinds of life. First story alone, Keith, 34 untruths. I counted them. So I knew about fake news way before you or other people. So those, the church grew in a two-year period of time from 4,500 to 140. That's the wrong way. We moved 26 times. We just, it was so hard to find a spot open. Um, my oldest son, Matthew, became a drug addict, started doing marijuana. His heart broke and lost all of our friends. We were homeless for 10 months. Everyone talking about us, death threats, all kinds of things. Everything was exaggerated. It just took a while. Six lawsuits, 15 concurrent attorneys, two class action lawsuits. And uh, all those things happened, and I became clinically, manically, and suicidally depressed for two and a half years. I knew I was depressed because I was finishing my PhD in psychology. I laid on my own couch and said, sir, you're very sick. I said, I know I am, leave me alone. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, rock and roller and jazz guy, and I got so depressed, I wrote a country western album. <laughs> Twelve songs, honest to God truth. And uh, all that happened, and I was 37 and thought my life was over. In, in my profession, the worst thing is a scandal. So if you have a scandal, 
we only exist by having the trust of the community. When you lose that, you've lost everything. So I've lo only loved one woman. I've lived moral. I've never touched a drop of alcohol. And those things are still true, but they were true back then. And I couldn't justify how, why did these bad things happen to me? Then I had to reread the Bible. You know, the Bible doesn't guarantee us a problem-free life. And uh, so, you know, many are the afflictions of the righteous, a verse I never claimed before. <laughs> Lord, I don't have enough affliction. You said I'd have many of them. Come on. But the Lord shall deliver him out of them all. So I was driving my car one day, uh, taking my kids to high school, freshman and sophomore, Matthew and Melody. And uh, it was, you know, a 45-minute drive one way. So about three hours a day in the car. And uh, so the Lord starts talking to me. And he says, would you like all the pain that you have to go away? I said, yes, Lord, I have. In fact, I've made a list of some names. If you would please kill everyone on this list. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to feel better about myself. Just Old Testament style, New Testament style. Your kingdom come, your will be done, Lord, whatever you want. I want your will. And what he said to me next changed and healed my life. One sentence. He said, Michael, if you will forgive the people that have hurt you, I will make you forget the pain they've caused you. It's a reference to the great Bible man, Joseph. And Joseph's betrayed by his family. He's falsely accused by Potiphar. He, he's brought out and he names his firstborn son Manasseh, which means to forget. And he said, for God has made me forget all my toil in all my father's house. And so I said to the Lord, Lord, I, how can I forgive them if I say the words, but my heart doesn't, you know, I'll feel like a hypocrite if I don't mean it. If there's no emotion behind it. And the moment I thought that, God gave me a vision. And the vision was of a train. And the engine of the train had emblazoned across it the word faith. And down maybe 100 cars was the very last car the caboose, and it had the word feelings on it. And the Lord was showing me if I would set my faith in motion, eventually my emotions would follow. It's like some of you today, you, you know, you barely got here. You've had a tough week, a tough day. You come to church, it's, it, you, just getting here was a miracle. So you're here, and then Steve's like, come on, everybody. You're like, oh, man. I'm barely here, dude. You know, like... By the third song, you're crying, oh, God, I feel your presence. It's okay. Our emotions follow our faith. So anyways, I respond. I start praying four times a day, you know, for these people. Nothing first week, nothing, you know, no emotions. In seventh or eighth week, I'm just going through it again, kind of a ritual. Lord, I pray for these people. I live by name. And the glory of God came into my car. I began to uncontrollably weep, something I don't do frequently. And... I wept so violently. I don't know how I drove. I was driving the car. I don't know how. Next, never I'm in my driveway. So a bunch of angels must have lifted up the car and just dropped it there. I'm in my driveway, and I'm sitting there. What just happened? So I did a forensic an inventory of my soul, and I realized all the pain was gone. Come on. The pain that I wanted to kill myself over. The pain that made me hopeless. The pain that tormented my mind. And equally miraculous, I felt an ocean of love for the people who broke my heart. Ah, you know your heart's healthy when it dreams again. 
God made your heart to be a dream factory. When he heals us, we start functioning with him about our future. Hope is the oxygen of the human soul. We suffocate without it. We have to have it. So, that, so I, I killed my Goliath. Everything I've ever faced since then is easy. All kinds of things, you know, ministry, all kinds. Now, I got my Goliath. I, I, I cut off his fat, ugly head. God set me free. Man, when you've come out of depression, my wife calls me Lazarus. My, my entire city, from newspapers to press to media to churches, spoke commonly, repeatedly, and negatively about me for a season of time. And in the midst of all of them, God resurrected me from the dead. Gave me a new church, bigger, better. Gave me a $50 million building for free. My favorite word in the English language. All unbelievable. My, my oldest son, drug, alcohol, alcoholic, drug addict, treated him, you know, put him in treatment a couple times. He's not responding. As soon as he can, he moves out of the house. He's an all-state athlete. And uh, he's running the streets. Drug dealers would come by my house with guns out the window. They want to kill him. Police knock on my door, want to arrest him. And I would lay in his bed at night and say, Jesus, don't let my son die tonight. So broken down by seven, eight years of addiction. I'm leaving this room one day because the Lord's healing me. He said, I want you to change the way you talk and pray about your son. All you do is tell me where he's at. I want you to start telling the devil where he's going to be. And the Lord said the sentence to me. He said, don't pray the problem, pray the promise. I ran in and told my wife, honey, God wants us to remind ourselves of all the prophetic words and all the things God told us our son would be. She said, yeah, yeah, we're going to do that. So prayed seven, eight years, nothing happens. We, we do that seven, eight weeks, and he's playing university basketball, and he wants to date one of the cheerleaders. He's not walking with God, hasn't been to church in years. And, and she says, I'll only date you if you come to my church. Thank you, Lord, for all the pretty single girls at City Church <laughs> that will bring in an army of men. And so he's, he's sitting like a Wednesday night or something, and they have a guest. He's in the back row like this. <laughs> you know, come on, man, I got a date. And the guest evangelist says, African-American guy says, there's someone here with a broken heart, fighting addiction, running from God. Your family's been through trauma. And tonight God's healing you. When he said that, my son, who was disinterested, fell on the floor, shook for 30, 40 minutes. When he got up, he was set free from cocaine addiction. Like that. <clears throat> Moved back home, went to Bible college, went to Haiti for a year as a missionary. You know you're saved when you go to Haiti for a year as a missionary. <laughs> and uh, I love Haiti. Been there many times. I love it. And now as uh, he and his wife are our executive pastor, have four great kids. He's a businessman too. Just everything God told me he'd be, he's become. When I agreed with God, it changed my words. One of the things in negative seasons, we have to really watch the way we talk about stuff. God will repair, you know, God can't 
Bless it until you stop cursing it. We so appreciate you spending time with us. If you'd like to invest into what God is doing through City Church California, you can go to our website, citychurchca.com, and click Give. Thanks again, and we hope to see you at one of our campuses this Sunday.